This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 151 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a 33-year-old South African who hosts one of the most iconic late-night shows of all time and currently is the youngest person and only person of color hosting a late-night show, The Daily Show's Trevor Noah. Noah, who is biracial, was born in the South African township of Soweto in 1984, during the era of apartheid, a system of institutionalized racial segregation and discrimination that lasted in that country until 1991, which did not make for an easy childhood. But the end of apartheid resulted in a new South Africa, in which, among many other things, comedy began to bloom, and in which his discovery of it, and his facility for it, quickly resulted in him becoming a superstar, with stand-up gigs selling out stadiums and a TV show soon coming his way. In 2011, he moved to the United States, where he made appearances on the late-night programs hosted by Jay Leno and David Letterman, all while continuing to tour the world. In 2013, he got a call from Jon Stewart, the host of The Daily Show, and learned that Stewart was a fan who wanted him to come to work for him. Although Noah declined, preferring the freedom he enjoyed at the time, he later visited the show on three occasions to make guest appearances. Then, in February 2015, Stewart announced that he would be leaving the show after 16 years. And a month later, to the shock of many who had never even heard Noah's name, Comedy Central announced that Noah would be his successor. Over the less than two years since Noah hosted his first Daily Show that September, he and Daily Show fans have been on something of a roller coaster ride. He had just five weeks to put together his first show after Stewart's last. He got into hot water over old tweets that some found offensive and he took flack for his even temperament, with many wanting him to show greater anger and indignation while covering the presidential race that was the backdrop for much of his tenure. But with the passage of time, critics and audiences have begun to warm to his cool and confident style. He assembled a writer's room and team of correspondents markedly more diverse than the one he inherited. He shined when the show left the studio and went on the road to cover the 2016 presidential conventions and on the election night that followed, He began attracting guests of the First Order, including President Barack Obama, and by the end of May 2017, just a couple of weeks ago, the show achieved its highest ratings yet, averaging just over 1 million viewers per episode, with an audience younger and more diverse than Stewart's Daily Show ever had. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Daily Show in New York, Noah and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how his unusual childhood has shaped his comedy and overall worldview. Why appearing on Leno and Letterman shows alone was a realization of his dreams and everything else has been gravy. 
How, once The Daily Show entered the picture, Stewart championed him when others didn't and helped to guide him through tough times. Why, for him, being the only person of color working in late night comes with an added sense of responsibility. Why he's so happy with how his show has come together of late and what he imagines his and its future will entail, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Trevor, thank you so much for doing this. Really thank appreciate you for having it. me, Scott. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We always begin with just the basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? And in your case, it, it gives us a nice excuse to promote your terrific memoir as well. So let's start. <laughs> I planned it that way. <laughs> said, be born in an interesting place, have an interesting life, and then write a book about it. So if people ask you about it, you get to profit. I was born in South Africa in 1984, which was towards the end of apartheid. Grew up to a black South African Hossa mother and a white Swiss father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that click wasn't a mistake <laughs> in your stereo system. That's that's the name of my culture, right. Hossa. That's what that is. <laughs> Try to do that at home, folks. Yeah. yeah. The name of your memoir is Born a Crime. That's right. And that's also been a subject of a lot of your stand-up over the years. And it was a crime because apartheid forbade yeah. mixed-race marriages and and being a child of a mixed-race marriage in the community where you grew up, which I believe was Soweto, that was an unusual thing as well, right? I mean, yeah, well, not... it, it was an unusual thing in, in South Africa yeah. as a whole. You know, you grew up in a country where everyone was separated by their race, and those who didn't conform, conform were given a new race. And so everyone was either black or white, or if you were mixed or my skin tone, then you were called colored, and then you were you know, grouped with people who had a similar skin tone and Indian people in their own group. And this didn't just separate you in terms of the law, separated you in terms of where you could live, what schools you could go to, what jobs you could have. And so, you know, I was living in a world where my mother, my father, and myself were technically all classed as different citizens under the law. So it it made growing up interesting, you know, obviously we couldn't live with my dad. And even me being in my family in a black area, was something that was always a risk for us. And a byproduct of that was that you spent a lot of time indoors because right. it could have been a legal issue. And so as a result, from what, I, from what I've gathered, that's why you became a big reader, which tends to lead to, you know, being a better writer and a better <laughs> thinker. So just can you talk about the role that reading played? It seems like it was a big thing for you. Yeah, I mean, reading, reading was and still is my happy place, you know. I was always an indoor kid. I still am. I am happy. I think it's why I can live anywhere in the world and feel like I'm home. Yeah. As long as my space is comfortable, if I have books to read, I'm having a great time. And reading books is how I traveled the world in my mind. You know, I could be anywhere and everywhere while still being locked up in, in a little house in Soweto. And that was funny because people ask me that all the time because my grandmother couldn't allow me or wouldn't allow me to leave the house because she was afraid the police would take me away if they spotted me. You because know, they figured you'd be, you were yeah, a yeah, yeah. They would, they would go, not even trespassing. They'd yeah. go, oh, this child shouldn't be here. Yeah, and either someone has broken the law, or this child is just lost, and they'd send me off to an orphanage. So I was very, very strictly monitored. Stayed in the house, and I read. And reading was it was and still is amazing. You know, took me took me everywhere I, I ever dreamed of going. Yeah. Now. Just to further contextualize for people who haven't yet read your memoir, which they should, the small place that you said where you lived, you've described as, let me just read it back, basically a very elevated 
hut with no running water or indoor sanitation, close quote. So I guess in spite of this and the and the sort of sense of fear that was sort of hovering, how did you still have a sense of humor? Where does that come from? Well, I think one thing I was blessed with was a family that found themselves through humor. My grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, all of them, some of the funniest people you'll ever come across, humor in different ways, some witty, some dry, you know, some over the top. Everyone laughed in my family, everyone still laughs. And through the toughest of times, the one thing that laughter I feel gives you is it gives you a moment where you realize how you wish to be. You know, it reminds you of your happiest self. It reminds you of your freest self. It, it's an anesthetic for the mind. What you're going through may be real, but for a moment, you don't feel the pain of what you're going through. And so it doesn't matter what your circumstance is in life. Laughter is something that people can't really take away from you. You know, it's, just, it's your state of mind. It's finding the funny in things, having a sense of humor is really a choice that human beings can make. Yes, some situations are harder to make the decision in, but you know, you read stories of how Nelson Mandela and his friends would laugh in prison. Yeah. This is on Robben Island yeah. when he thought he was spending the rest of his life behind bars. And Another, so if you can laugh in that situation. <laughs> no, totally. And an a example closer to home was, from what I gather, I guess maybe about eight years ago, your mother had a tough thing where a, an ex-husband got violent and nearly lost her life. And you say the the way she responded to it was sort of case in point of this, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my, you know, my mother was shot in the head and it was a really, really tough time for our family. And in the hospital, the first thing she said when she could speak was a joke, you know, that, uh, and I'll never forget the joke. I will never forget the moment I, I don't think I will ever forget what it meant to me as well, because it wasn't just the joke, it was really the state of mind that it put all of us in. You know, it said something larger about the moment. And that was essentially, we were gonna be all right. You know, because as long as you're laughing, you're living. So why not laugh? I think we have to just say the joke at this point though. Can we, can I ask you to share? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no, my, my mom, <laughs> you know, she was waking up from, I guess she was under, I don't know if she was in a coma per se, but you know, she, she and she opened her eyes and I was crying at the time. And my mother looked at me and she said, don't cry, baby. She said, don't cry. And I said, how can I not cry? You almost died. And she said, no. She said, look on the bright side. And I said, what, what is, there's no bright side. You got shot in the head. You know, the bullet came through your face. And she says, yes, but now you're officially the best looking person in the family. <laughs> and that was great. And I was crying, but I laughed so hard. Right. You know? <laughs> that was, that was really how we lived our lives. Right. Now, before comedy really became something that you were practicing yourself, you were a bit of a hustler. You were kind of coming up with everything from getting in lunch lines for people for money to burning CDs when that was a big thing. Right. What put an end to to those sort of side gigs and led to the beginning of, of even being aware of stand-up comedy, which was not a big thing in South Africa until apartheid went away? Well, I think the biggest thing was just... Uh the company I kept, you know, my mom always hated that I, I hung out with the wrong crowds. And it was interesting because she realized something that in a, in a microcosm was just affecting myself. But on a larger scale, you realize 
in many ways defines people's lives. And my mother said to me, if you hang out in uh, the township or in the hood and you are surrounded by crime and you are surrounded by a way of life, you too can easily get sucked into that way of life. And so she always wanted me to go hang out with my cousin who was at a university. And I said, but I, I'm not in university. Why would I want to be there? And she said, because even being around those people will inspire you to become better. Mm. And and I mean, that, that, was, that was a powerful moment for me because it spoke to something larger than just myself. And that was, if you give people the opportunity to be in a better space, or if you make their space better, there is a good chance that they themselves will become the better that they see around them. And, and that's really all it was for me. You know, I, I, I stepped into a different world and I wanted to be more like it. I wanted to aspire to different things. And comedy happened by chance. I was hanging out with some friends. My cousin and my best friend invited me to a, a show and I was in a little dingy bar. You know, there were, there were no comedy clubs at that time. And we got to the show and, you know, it was a horrible show that night. <laughs> the comedians weren't having a good time. And that was that was the night I started. You know, my cousin was like, you should get on stage. And and I tried it. And I've been trying ever since. This was in Joburg? Or yeah, this yeah. was in Johannesburg. Yeah. And so at that point, how did it go in just a matter of only a few years from trying for the first time to being the biggest comedian in South Africa? I mean, you had your own show. You were selling out all the biggest venues there. It kind of introduced comedy at a different level than it had ever been in, in South Africa. So what was the evolution before you even left South Africa? Well, I think I was really lucky in that I, I kicked my career off as the wave of South African comedy was was growing. You know, I I was lucky in that there were there was a generation of comedians just before me who really kicked off the commercialization of comedy. They kicked off comedy as a mainstream idea. When I started, it wasn't yet something that everyone immediately consumed. It was still niche to a certain extent. But I, I was lucky in that I got into it. I didn't have to start the industry from scratch. Uh, all I really worked to foster was the idea that this could become someone's full-time job, that someone could do this selling tickets to the public and, and making a living off of it. And... I was I was really lucky that that happened. You know, it, it was a short amount of time. You know, if you don't consider the work that I that I put into it, you know. <laughs> so, I've always been a lazy person. And one thing my mom told me when I was young was she said, "You're really lazy. <laughs> so what you should do is make sure that you work smart." And she said, "If you if you don't want to work long, make sure that you don't have to do it more than once. Right. So whether it was washing the dishes right. or whether it was mowing the lawn or whether it was doing the, you know, the laundry, my mother said, make sure you do it right. And that way you won't have to do it again. And that's how I've seen everything in life. So stand up was the same. I went, if I'm going to get good at this, I have to do it. And so I would be doing four or five shows a night, you know, in a place where you driving between shows could be 30 minutes. It was, right. it was a really tough way to do comedy. But I enjoy it. I still I still do. Well, you had your own TV show there, I guess, tonight with Trevor Noah. I assume, I believe, just mathematically, the Daily Show must have already been happening here in the United States. Were you exposed or in any way influenced by that? Were you aware of it? No. No, I wasn't. Which was fun, I think, because I, I got to make a show just out of my mind. I think I had seen... You know, to a certain, I'd seen like Jay Leno, for instance. Yeah. I'd seen The Tonight Show. I, those were the shows that we, we we got a little more of. 
So I had obviously seen that type of thing. But very quickly, I came to realize that that late night style didn't work for South Africa. You know, most importantly, people don't get the monologue where I'm from. (laughs) Just the idea of these like single jokes that are thrown out there. Not going for it. Does not fly where I'm from. (laughs) Like Africans are storytellers. Right. So for you to just come out and make a bunch of random jokes about topics that are in the newspaper doesn't fly. So I had to learn very quickly to adapt the show to become what was right for the audience that was consuming it. And is that where what seems to have been your your inclination ever since was to draw from your own personal experiences, tell stories right. and jokes about that? I guess what people call observational comedy. But also you, you have this plethora of amazing accents and things that <laughs> I think part of that may be because you – in the in the township grew up around so many different types of people right yeah oh definitely and my family yeah and my family is everyone you yeah. know when you when you have a swiss father and then uh, toss a mother and then a you know zulu cousins or, and you have tsonga step family <laughs> you you are a mix of everyone and everything and right. then your school brings in kids from you know, who are Greek origin. And, and then, you know, my high school was a, a, basically a Jewish high school yeah. in, in a Jewish area. Yeah. And then <laughs> you were with everyone doing everything. And I've, I've always enjoyed absorbing people's cultures. I've always enjoyed assimilating and finding the heart of, of a culture. So I think that's, that's a lot of where the accents came from. Is it's just a quicker way to communicate. Yeah. So what was the significance of, of the stand-up show you did in 2009, The Day Walker? I think it was like a 75-minute set, again, largely about your upbringing. Right. Was that sort of a turning point? It seems like that might have catapulted things a bit. That was. That was, you know, the first big show that I worked to do. That was, you know, the first nationwide tour in South Africa at that scale, you know, and it went into Africa as well, which hadn't been done before. So, and I put everything on the line for that. I took every cent I'd saved to shoot a DVD. It was the first show in in South Africa that had been shot in HD at the time, you know, the first stand-up show. I, I put everything into it. I risked it all. I, 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 was, I was really lucky in that I was rewarded for it. You know, people bought the DVDs, people then came out to more of my shows and what I had put in, I, I was able to reap. And is that directly what led to you relocating to the U.S.? I think it started, that started in like 2011, so not that long after. Yeah. Was the, the goal was to take this international? Well, my dream was always to travel the world, Yeah. you know, and more importantly, my dream was to do stand-up in the home of stand-up. And there were only ever two homes of stand-up for me. That was London mm-hmm. and New York. Those are the two places where you would hear stories from comedians who came to South Africa. Oh, London, there's hundreds of clubs and you can do 10 gigs a night and, you know, you can go anywhere. It's amazing. You just, every night you could see anyone. And then you, you hear guys from New York and they were like, man, New York, man, it's the greatest place in the world, man. You want, you want stage, Dave Chappelle going to pop up, man. You got Chris Rock, you got, and you're like, really? In one night? And that was my dream. So why New York instead of London? I think New York is the greatest city in the world. I think New York is a city that stands apart from any other city for a multitude of reasons. You know, it's not just one of the homes of comedy. It's it's also like a it's a cultural melting pot that that is dictated by nothing. It it, it you know it there is no one thing that runs New York. You know, you go to LA, 
LA is fame. We understand that it's the industry. Doesn't matter if the person's a plumber or a policeman, they've most probably got a script in their back pockets. <laughs> you come to New York, half of the people here have no clue who I am. You know, some people who are here because they're in banking, other people are here because they're in architecture, other people are here because they're in construction, other people are, you know, trading internationally, other people are in TV, other people on Broadway, some people are in publishing. This is everything, mm -hmm. which I really enjoy. There's a heartbeat to the city, and the only thing that really drives New York, as it feels, is, is ambition, which I really enjoy as a young person. So once you got here in 2011, you started doing quite well here pretty quickly because... By 2012, I think that was when you first went on Leno yeah. and Letterman yeah. soon after. And I mean, you kind of have to pinch yourself that this was, I mean, this is, again, you said this, these were the few guys that you were right. exposed to back in South Africa, and now you're going on their shows. Yeah, no, it was, it was really an experience I will, I will never forget, especially getting onto The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, because Letterman I've now learned of. We never got Letterman really? in South Africa. So Jay Leno and The Tonight Show was this, was this globally known show. And no South African had ever been on. No. So that already was, was huge. And to get on that and then to then see what Letterman was and what he meant to so many comedians and to so many people in the industry to get on that show, which was also interesting because I, I only learned afterwards how hard it was to do both shows. <laughs> yeah, very few. There are very few comedians... Yeah who have performed on both shows. You, There were a lot of Letterman guys yeah. and there were a lot of Leno guys. And then people were like, what do you mean you do, you're doing Leno and Letterman? They're like, that, <laughs> that makes no sense. How did you swing that? How did that happen? I, I guess it was just being in the right places at the right times. Right. You know, I, I worked a lot in LA, spent a few years working on my set, working on material, got spotted by Leno's bookers, got asked to audition, got asked to perform. Same thing happened in New York. You know, Letterman's guys saw me, asked me to audition, asked me to perform. So... So it was, you know, it's, oh, it, I always think that's what it is. Luck, combination of hard work and being at the right place at the at the right time. And at that point when, when those big appearances were happening, what for you was the dream end goal here? What could have been the best way this played out? I think by that time, my dreams had all been achieved. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I always say to people, I go, sometimes your, your dreams may limit you because you can only dream of what you can imagine. And so that was way beyond my wildest dreams. I was done, <laughs> you know, and so I tell people, I'm like, I'm, I'm already done now. Every right. day just becomes like extra dream, dream plus. <laughs> that's where I'm in. Right. Well, one thing though, that I think you discovered in the course of, of doing up in America was what also drove Dave Chappelle, who I, I believe, you know, now, and have probably spoken about this with, it's what drove him away from comedy for a long time, which is that if you open up about your experiences in a way that can be interpreted by others differently than you intended. Right. And then you see that it can be kind of demoralizing. We know with him, it, I think it was people misappropriating jokes right, about the N-word. Right, right, How was it for you? The hardest thing I had to learn, and it was, it was, a, it was a painful experience, was realizing the power dynamic and its shift coming from Africa to the United States. I come from a place where as much as black people were oppressed and still suffer the effects of that oppression, we are now the majority. So we have a black president, we have black people writing the laws, there are still white people in government, mm -hmm. but black no longer has one idea attached to it. Black can be a leader, black can be a criminal, black can be a CEO, 
black can be a homeless person. Or later in a criminal. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so black is now not defined by one experience, which is different when you come to the US because so many stigmas I found were attached to being black. And so when I would tell jokes, oftentimes these were jokes and ideas that I had formulated existing in a black area, in a black space. You know, I'd go to a barbershop that is black. I would, you know, hang out in Compton or, you know, Pasadena north of the, I think it was the 210. And, you know, I, I was in places where um, I just gravitated towards. And so I would formulate comedy there. What I didn't realize was sometimes I would go to an audience that wasn't predominantly black and they would laugh at the joke in a different way. They would see my comedy as an avenue to shunning and mocking African-Americans as opposed to something that I would normally share mm -hmm. in an African-American community or audience. How did this change your, did it, did it change anything about how you went about this? Oh yeah, definitely. It's, it's made me more wary. It's made me more conscious of, of, of ideas that I perpetuate. It's made me more conscious of where I share, what I share, because if something I say can and will be used against <laughs> me or against others, mm -hmm. I would prefer not to give someone the tools to do that. So right. it's just made me more conscious of it, which is better. How did you first hear from John Stewart? He reached out <laughs> to you, right? I feel like I've come full circle in the story because <laughs> first time I heard from John Stewart, I was in London and I was having the time of my life because I had not only been able to be successful in South Africa, I had now just begun touring the world. And I've been in Scotland, in Edinburgh. I had now started touring in the UK. And I remember on the day I was standing in London, in Harrods, the department store that sells everything. <laughs> and I was standing, staring at an underwater scooter, right? Basically a submarine scooter, bright yellow. And I was just staring at it, so expensive. <laughs> Had no chance of affording it. I just stared <laughs> at it and dreamed. And my phone rang and I answered. I didn't know what the number was, you know, and a voice on the other end said, uh, hey, Trevor, my name's John, John Stewart. And I said, yes. And he said, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of me. I'm a comedian from America. And I was like, oh, you know, in your head, you're like, oh, should I? That's John Stewart, <laughs> the John Stewart. And I said, yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard of you. Yeah. And he goes, oh, good, good, good. Well, I, I host a show called The Daily Show <laughs> with John Stewart. And I said, yeah, I've heard of the show. And he's like, yeah, and I, you, you better have heard of the show. <laughs> and then he said to me, hey, I, I, I've watched your comedy. I like what you do. I'd love for you to come hang out. And as crazy as the story still sounds to people, I said, no. <laughs> I said, I thank you so much, but no, I'm I'm touring, I'm living my life, I'm having a great time. I don't think I could ever just come and stay in one place. Because basically what he was saying was come contribute to The Daily Show. Yeah. Was it that you just actually, because of commitments, were not able to, or you felt that it was not the right move? I didn't think it was the right move. I didn't take for granted the fans that I had cultivated from the ground up. You must remember, I had no blow-up moment. Mm -hmm. There's no one incidents I can look at where I go and it was, the, you know, it was that night that everything changed. No, <laughs> every little night has been a spark that helps ignite the flame that is my career, but mm -hmm. I, I don't have one moment. So to be in London where you've worked from a tiny theater of 50 people and now you are selling a few thousand seats is something I wouldn't, so I wouldn't cancel it to know what I want to. Right. You know, I, I didn't want to just leave and then go and then, and then what? I, I was like, no. So what did he say in response to that? I mean, he, he didn't didn't blame me. He said, hey, listen, I, I get it. He said, he said, I envy you. <laughs> he said, I wish I was touring the world doing comedy right. and it sounds amazing and 
you're telling me all these stories about where you go. And, and he said, but listen, I see in you something that I saw in myself. I think you would do well here. And a time will come when you may want a home base. A time may come when you may want a city that you can, you know, lay your head in every single night. And he said, when that time comes, call me. And if you're in New York, let me know. How did it wind up being that in, I guess, December 2014, you now did go on The Daily Show for the first time. What changed between that first call and then? Well, I was in New York, and so I called him. (laughs) It was just that. And it was just a one-off. Yeah, I was in New York, and I called John and the people, and I was like, hey, I'm in town. And they're like, well, let's come come hang out at the show. And I hung out with John for the day, and he took me around, and we had a great time. John said, "You you should do something on the show. I said, I'd love to. And so we did one segment, and that's literally all it was. There was no deal for me being here a long time. It was, I'm just going to be on the show once, and then Like I one leave. day? One day. And then there were two other days where you made contributions like yeah. that. In the three months between when you first showed up there for that first one in December 2014, and then in February 2015 when he announced he was leaving. Right. So when he made that announcement... Did it even occur to you that it was a possibility that you would be approached about succeeding him? Or no. it wasn't even fathomable? No, that was madness. I was <laughs> I was still shocked. I was like, what do, you, what do you mean you're going? I came to work with you. That's That was my first right. thoughts. Right. And then I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm back on the road. Right. And so what happened that led to you learning that you were even in consideration? Well, I think it was a process of realizing that no name seemed to be coming up. You know, I, I was following all of the news just as everyone else was, all of the rumors, all of the people that were being pitched. And then I noticed very quickly that there was no there was no success. You know, Stephen Colbert was going on to do The Late Show. John Oliver was successfully doing his show. You know, Samantha B had announced that she was already going off to start her show. And so everyone was in a world where they had decided to do something else and and no name stuck. And then I would see lists all the time of just people and people and people. And then one day someone said, would you consider? And then, you know, I met with the network and we talked about it. And I said, I would I would consider it. You know, I didn't really think I had a chance. So I, I didn't have much to fear nor, nor, nor think about. But even considering it, it just seems like it's such a departure from what you had when you first spoke to John. You loved this sort of nomad life where yeah. you're everywhere. <laughs> and this whole idea of doing this show... I don't know what the number of years that you have, you were being asked to commit to, but it inherently binds you to one place for right. a long time. That seems like a major departure. Well, I think I didn't have a full idea of how tied down I would be. And until this day, I tell John when I see him, every time I say, curse you <laughs> for making it look easier than it actually is. Right. John Stewart is one of the most talented individuals that has ever graced our TV screens. What he did was not easy. He spawned thousands of variations of a show. You know, in America alone, everyone is trying to do what John Stewart did in different ways, you know. But you see his DNA on everything, whether it's whether it's John Oliver, Sam B, Stephen Colbert, Larry Wilmore, Seth Meyers, everyone is trying to do a bit of what John was doing. And so he made it look easy, you know. So when I said I would accept the job, I did not think it would take as much of my time as it as it now does. <laughs> right. Before we go any further, let's talk about, so from having been under consideration along with others, talk about, if you can, when you found out you got the job. And also, was John, who was clearly in your corner, just an admirer, was he a factor in the decision? I found out 
I got the job in Dubai. I was in the back of a taxi <laughs> and I had just come back from doing a show and my manager called me and uh, all he said was, how would you like to be the host of The Daily Show? <laughs> and in that moment, time stops. And I'm glad I was sitting because I think I would have fallen really? if, I, if I was standing. And, I, you know, I, it, it was just shock. Shock, joy, a little bit of fear. And then I went about celebrating the night. And I'm really lucky my friends were with me. So it was a moment I got to share with yeah. people. And that was the moment. With regards to John, I definitely think that John was a big reason that I got the show. Because the network leaned on him to say, hey, who could do this? And does he you remain know? involved as like a producer or anything like no, that? No, no, no. He was just no, totally John, handing it off. John wanted to be out. Yeah. That's one thing John wanted. He said, listen, I'm tired. He also didn't want to hamper me from making the show the way I wanted to make it. You know, John was like, you need, you need to make something new. John was like, my show is dead and you need to make something new. You need to work towards something new. And, and if I'm here, I will impede that. People will try and make what I want to make and I won't be able to completely let go. Let me go and let me rest. It's kind of a nice gift because you it's have an total amazing freedom, gift. right? Yeah, 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 it's an amazing gift. How did your mother react to the news that you were going to be having this major step in your life? Oh, well, the same way she reacted to my brother becoming head of the student council. Yeah. She did not. <laughs> <laughs> my mother has no concept of fame. <laughs> I, I, you know, people, people sometimes see it as a negative thing. And I go, I don't think you understand in my mother's world, like the only famous person is Jesus. That's it. <laughs> You know, me getting The Daily Show was no different to me getting, you know, Tonight with Trevor Noah in South Africa. Right. It was no different to me selling my first comedy DVD. It's right. just, it's an achievement and she's proud, but she doesn't quantify her pride by the scale of the achievement. Right. <laughs> now, when it was announced that you were going to be taking this job, the reaction of a lot of people was... Trevor who? Because it, you were not yet, a, as you say, a household name in this Definitely. country. And... That had only really happened, as far as I know, in terms of late night with Corden, where Americans were just sort of like, I've never heard of this guy. Let's, yeah. you know, we'll see what it is. Was it more of an asset or more of a hurdle to come in as sort of somebody that people, it was sort of a blank slate for a lot of people? I think it's both. Everything in life is a gift or a curse, depending on how you use it. And so being an unknown entity gives you the opportunity to use that curiosity to foster interest in the show that you're going to make. It makes people want to ask questions, makes people want to know who you are. The downside of people not knowing who you are is that they rush to create a narrative of who you are. So if people don't know you, they go, we need to figure Fill out who in. this yeah. person is. Well, let's try. We've only got, what, a few hours or a day. Let's try and find out who we think this person is, even if we don't know them, because it, it takes time to know somebody. And so... That's the downside is people cobbling together what they can to try and build a narrative of who you are as a human being. The plus side of being known would have been that people would have a track record of who you are, but then that could work against you. People go right. like, oh, I know who that person is. They can't do it. Right. They've already made their they've decision. Exactly. They've already made their decision. So everything is a gift and a curse. And so I, I could only use the, the circumstances that I was presented with. What I think you may be referring to in the first clause of that previous answer was what happened there for, you know, I guess it was a pretty brief news cycle, but it might not have felt brief for you where people were digging through social media, digging through all this right. other stuff. And to be honest, I, I did go back to look at, at the stuff that everybody was making a commotion about. And I, I don't see it being that 
much of an issue to me. But I think as you're saying there, we've got to quickly fill in the blank and, you know, describe this guy. Some people who escalated it really did so, though. And it and I wonder if you felt at, at any point that this thing might escape your grasp before you even really got in here. You know, how did you handle that tough period? I think there were a few things that I had to look at. You know, number one, I can only know who I am. So, you know, when people say things about you, especially as a comedian, you go, every comedian has made jokes that when taken in the wrong context are just going to be horrible. You know, I remember when Chris Rock was talking about his joke, you know, you know, the difference between niggas and black people. And when he started that joke, he says if he never got a chance to work it, it would have been the worst joke he had ever made. That's what comedians complain about today, is that what used to be, you know, this little space known right. as a comedy club where you could work an idea has now been infiltrated by the camera phone. That's and why so Eddie now, Murphy doesn't do it anymore. Exactly, okay. because Eddie Murphy goes, while I'm starting, you may record that and then I never get to start because you, you've made a decision already. And it is, it is a little bit harder, you know, and what you're trying to do with comedy is you're trying to craft an idea and you craft it from the doldrums of the wrong a lot of the time. You know, you, you're using coal to make diamonds. Now, if people just find you with coal, you're just, you're just right. covered in the stuff and, and you get lambasted right. for it. So, so I, I, I understood that. You know, I understand that without context, comedy makes no sense. I also understood that I was replacing somebody who was beloved. You know, John Stewart, a man who was on the cover of Time magazine as America's most trusted at one point. I mean, that's... That's not an easy spot to take without facing some sort of backlash. Even from liberals who like to think of ourselves, I think, as maybe more tolerant and open-minded. I heard you took some of the worst flack from liberals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess self-described liberals. Yeah. You know? Right. I had I had people telling me, go back to Africa or go, <laughs> you know, go back to Djibouti or, Jum you know, all these random places. It was random, random stuff. And I... I mean, I understood that. Again, that's where, you know, the network was really wonderful because at the time, Doug Herzog was working, you know, running MTV Networks and you had Michelle Gainless who was also running the show at Comedy Central. And what was great was they gave me perspective and they said, hey, we were here when John started. <laughs> we remember when people were saying he couldn't replace Craig right, Kilborn. Right. <laughs> you know, they people used to laugh about John. He was the guy with the seven canceled shows. Right. And it's like, oh, the failure guy. And here he is again coming to fail at this show. It's just there was no internet in that way back right. then. There was no social media. So people don't have a record right. of that in right. the same way. But it was as scathing for John. And I'm glad that John told me that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember when this was happening, John phoned me in Dubai and he said, hey, man, he said, ask yourself this question. He says, people read your tweets. People don't know you. They don't know where you came from. They don't know who you are. So they look at your tweets. They look at your picture. And then they go, who needs to be taken down a notch? Right. Clearly this person. Yeah. And so that's, that's what people do. But I was lucky in that everyone in that space was really supportive. And, you know, I was on a network that had, you know, ridden through the storm of South Park when right. they had the worst of it. And... <laughs> You know, they'd ridden through some storms with John and right. some storms with Colbert. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, luckily it's good to, when you're working at a comedy network, it's good to work with people who understand that there are some inherent risks involved in right. doing comedy. Another thing that I'm sure may have taken your mind off of some of that was that you had only 
five weeks to between John's <laughs> last show, John's last show, August 6th, 2015, your first September 28th, 2015. So maybe, I don't know, maybe seven weeks, something like that. But that's awfully short compared to Colbert had nine months, I think, yeah. and some of these guys. What went on? You must have had to pack a lot into those weeks. It was hard. It was really, really hard. You know, and I still wish we had more time because starting up a new show, especially a late night show, needs a lot of time. You need to figure out what you're doing. You need to figure out why you're doing it. You need to think of your audience and you have to think of the, the identity of the show. I think the network and myself realized we could only work with what we had. And the main thing we had was an election cycle coming up. So if we took nine months, we could have been deep in the trenches with Trump by the time we came on TV. And at that time, it doesn't feel like you have the standing to comment or you may have missed the initial wave of talking about this election. Now, granted, when I started, Trump didn't seem like a you know, a major player for no. most people. Although you were one of the first who recognized that there was a real possibility oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's uh, Trump was like the first person. I, I said he was going to win from the beginning because I, I just thought he would. And it's because I, maybe it's because I was stupid. I always tell people, I go, I was stupid and naive. I just thought, this guy looks like he's doing well. He's going to win. <laughs> and people were like, no, but he doesn't say anything. I was like, oh, but it sounds like he's saying right? things. He's going to win. And then it turned out a lot of people thought like I did, and that's why they voted for him. And there's been some some guys in Africa who sort of conduct themselves exactly. similarly, right? So you, you recognize that. But I know that one of the other things that you did during that gap period was I think you made a concerted effort to really diversify the staff here, which had been one of the few things that people had had knocked the show for when when John was here. And it's not, you know, it's just maybe you can talk about how it changed and what the value of that has been. Well, here's, here's the thing I, I think people take for granted is the benefits of creating a show or creating anything whilst including as many voices as possible. So if we take a step back, you know, when people knocked John for it, I think one thing many people didn't give John credit for was living and acknowledging the fact that he lived in a world where for a moment he may have been, uh, you know, he may have, he may have had a, a blind spot when it came to gender or even to, to race. Mm -hmm. But anyone who tries to accuse him of not addressing that is, is sorely mistaken. I'm, I'm a product of that. I mean, the guy went and watched videos of African comedians. He didn't need to do that. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Right, you know, right. the same goes for Hassan Minaj, who was hired at the same time that I was. And you, you look at what, what's happening now in Hassan's career, yeah. and you look at the voice that he's adding to comedy and just to the conversation in how, you know, Asian people are perceived in America. It, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful and interesting place to be in. For myself, it was never a concerted effort in terms of diversity for the sake of diversity. I just go, no, I, I would like to have people who are experienced or have a knowledge that I don't have. Yeah. You know, so I would like to have someone who is a woman. Why? Because I'd like to know how a woman thinks about what is happening. You know, it's the same way if I look at healthcare being written in the Senate, I, I would think as a senator, I would go like, maybe half of us should be women because half right. of the country are women. Right. It would be nice to have them tell us what their healthcare needs may be that we take for right. granted. <laughs> well, yesterday's show, which I was able to, to sit in on, was a great example of this because you had your female correspondent who was talking about Wonder Woman and being the, right. the 
the value of having uh-huh. a female superhero beyond the surface value. And you had a guest who was talking about sort of dear white people and how right. that brings perspectives. That So, I mean, it, it, I think that's real life manifestations of what you're talking about. Yeah, just, no. And if anything, I feel like I picked up where John Stewart left off. You know, I, I inherited a legacy from him. And I'm proud to say that I've just been continuing a lot of the work that he's done. And, and that was my job is to grow the show, to slowly evolve it into something new and different, but still maintain the core. And that was an institution that thrives on, you know, giving voices to people who have interesting things to say. One of the other things that I know you're often asked about, and I, I think it's an, an interesting topic, you have an interesting answer, is that there's been a tendency from people to knock you for, for not being as angry or expressing as much righteous indignation about things as John might have. What's your response to that? I think it's pretty interesting. Well, I think it's twofold. On the one side, and I say this on behalf of John Stewart, I, I remember he always said, why do people not remember my jokes? <laughs> you know, even if you go back and look at like the top moments that people remember from the Daily Show history, a lot of them are serious moments yeah. with John. A lot of them are fights that he had or eviscerations. Or <laughs> Most of the time, John was laughing. Right. John is one of the goofiest human beings you'll ever come across in your life. He's funny. That is, he's like most comedians. Right. He's balanced. He's nuanced. You know, and so that is the same for myself. I always ask people, I go like, where did you want my anger to come from? (laughs) Did you want me to arrive in America on day one and be angry? But why would I be angry? And more importantly, what would that give an audience that they didn't already have? You know, if you want to find an angry point of view, I'm pretty certain there are Americans who will give you that point of view (laughs) on TV. What I can provide is a different perspective. I can come into a space and neither see Trump as good or bad, but rather say to you, he's from the right place, but he's from the, you know, he's in the wrong place. Right. You know, Donald Trump is an African dictator. <laughs> if he were on another continent, he wouldn't be having half the stress he's having right. here. Right. And that's that's me using my perspective. My perspective is is seeing something that everyone else is looking at and and questioning it from a different standpoint, not going left or right, not going liberal or conservative, but rather saying, just as somebody who is new to this to this idea of American politics, I will just ask you a question that may seem stupid on the surface, but oftentimes will expose the fact that it's a question no one has asked themselves. And this whole idea of even-handedness and seeing both sides of an issue might, I wonder, date back to the fact that that was your experience from the earliest days of your life when you were had a foot in both both worlds. Definitely, of, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I you know, I, I know some people would would see it as a as a weakness. I, I choose to focus on it as a strength, and that is, I cannot see all white people as a monolith, because I have experiences of white people that are in my blood. Mm-hmm. I cannot see all black people as a monolith, because I have black experiences and black people that are in my blood. And so I've been forced, because of who I am, to see people as people, to see individuals as individuals, and to see communities as what they really are, beyond stereotypes, beyond one idea, you know, enjoying what is to be enjoyed in there, and at the same time, uh, pointing out the fallacies that may be contained in ideas of these people. So... The same goes for U.S. politics. It's strange for me because in South Africa, we have a parliamentary system. So we have a spectrum 
of politics. It's not just left or right. right. You know, and it's the same way I think it should be in America, mm-hmm. to be honest. I don't think Bernie and Hillary should be in the same party or on the same stage in any way, shape or form. They're not trying to go for the same thing, nor are Donald Trump and Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. You know, it's weird because now you see people having to conform to ideas that don't really represent who they are instead of truly standing up and saying, this is my idea, this is where I come from, this is who I am. So being able to see it from that place, because I haven't grown up Democrat or Republican, I think is what I try and lean on as a, as a, as a host and say, this is how I see it as someone who hasn't been forced into one of these categories my entire life. Yeah, I think it's healthy. And it's interesting that some of the most successful people in your arena of, you know, of late night have of late, including you, been others who have this outsider perspective, whether it's John Oliver or James Corden or whoever, it's just kind of, and just, you know, you wonder if, if there is really something to, to that being a a part of the reason. Well, I I think a big thing people don't consider, you know, when people say outsider, they often forget how pervasive American culture is. Yeah. You know, so, so people say outsider, what they don't realize is I was never an outsider to American culture. I grew up on America. Right, right. You know, I ate American food. I watched American movies. I sang American songs. The whole world operates like that. You know, people don't stop and think to themselves that Adele, when speaking, sounds like she comes from the heart of, (laughs) you know, Liverpool or wherever it is in in the UK. You go like, this person sounds nothing like the voice because when she sings, she sings American, (laughs) which is something that people don't consider. That's the power of American culture in the world. So a lot of the time when you come into America, you're not an outsider to America's cultures. Right. You may be an outsider to America's politics mm-hmm. and maybe to America's way of life. But a lot of what America is, is all over the world. And so when you come in, maybe it's easier for you to get accustomed to it because a lot of it you've already been living for most of your life. I understand that you felt the show really started to come into its own at the conventions when you guys did it live from the, I think it was live from the conventions uh, right. this past summer. Why was that? What what happened there that really was defining for you guys? There were a few things. One thing that, that really gave us a spark was that we were out of the building. You know, I didn't just inherit The Daily Show. I inherited The Daily Show staff, which was another thing that's unique in late night, is that I didn't wish to fire everybody and, right. and, and start again. So it, it was nice to be able to keep everyone's jobs and move forward with them, which was gonna be more difficult, but I also had the you know the pleasure of taking their expertise as well. So this was an opportunity for us to exist outside of a space that everyone had grown accustomed to. And so now the show had to lean less on the previous idea of what it was and more on the host's vision of what it should be. And the conventions were that, because yeah. the Daily Show had never been in Cleveland. Right. So it, it changed everything. I think it also became the ramp up for our show because that's when it became real. Now Donald Trump Mm -hmm. was one-on-one with Hillary Clinton. Now these were the two candidates. Which leads to the next question, which is you guys also were live, but I think from the studio on election night. Right. What was that like? I'm sure it's not how you, well, you kind of expected it, but I mean, honestly, when you went into that night, did you have any idea what you were going to be in for that night? I didn't really, but I prepared myself for all outcomes. You know, we, we had two shows that were basically mapped out 
thinking of uh, Hillary win and also writing to a Donald Trump win, mm. you know, we were prepared, but I don't think we were ready. I don't think anyone was ready. I don't no. think Donald Trump was no. ready. You see the shots of <laughs> the results coming in with, you know, Trump and Pence and everyone standing around. And you can see that they didn't expect it either. So on that night, election night for us was a night where we reacted as honestly as possible. And we still leaned on the humor to get us through what everyone was experiencing. And that was all we could do on that day. The next day, though, I knew as The Daily Show, we would have to change gears. And it's funny how, for me, how quickly people forget. Because after Donald Trump won, I remember so many pundits, so many people in the public asking of the media, why did you not spend more time talking about Donald Trump's failings or... Why did you not spend more time, you know, focusing on how this man was out of the ordinary? And why did you spend so much time focusing on Hillary? And why did you spend so much time talking about frivolous things? And then I've been amused by how quickly <laughs> someone would turn around now and say, why do you guys focus so much on Donald Trump? And I go, because I do not want to make the mistake that I feel so many made before, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, myself included. I remember going like, ah, should we? And I was like, yeah, I think this is the thing. And people are like, come on, man. Surely something. Talk about Hillary's emails. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's a real thing. <laughs> really? I don't know if that's something. I understand you want to do it because then it makes it seem like there's sides and then it makes it more interesting. But, you know, I don't know. And so now I say to people, I go, this is not about Donald Trump. Now this is about the president of the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And what you do as president is not just news, but it has ramifications. Right. So I don't think my show will ever not be focusing on what the president of the United States does especially when it touches every single facet of the world, of every aspect of lawmaking. Well, there was a brief period there, obviously, between November and January when we had a different president who was <laughs> sort of on his way out, but one of his stops that he made, which I think must have been a massive moment. In fact, yesterday during the pre-show Q&A that you do, somebody asked you which guest had meant the most to you. And I think you said that when President Obama, outgoing President Obama came on in December of last year, that was a, a pretty huge moment. And probably not just because he was the president of the United States, because I I, know, I don't know if Donald Trump would have been as exciting to you. But the fact that you had a pretty similar experience to the extent that, I mean, Donald Trump would argue that it, that you were both born in Africa. But it was like, <laughs> but it was like, I mean, basically, this must have been a very special thing for you. Yeah, it really was. It was special for me and it was special for the show because it was the beginning of a new journey. And with President Obama, it was almost a, you know, a, a capping off of the end because we had worked hard to get to that point. I mean, to get to the point where the president of the United States says, I'm going to come on your show. And he didn't just want to come on the show. He specifically said to me, he said, uh, Trevor, uh, I'm going to come on the show <laughs> and uh, I want to, I want to talk. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to play games. Uh, I don't want to ride bicycles. I don't want you, the, the, you know, throwing pie. Uh, I don't want to sing. All right. We're going to talk. Real talk. All right. So let's do it. That's I like, great. I was like, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, it was an honor to have him see us for who we were working hard to become. And that was a funny show that you could take seriously, a funny show that you can come and share your opinions on. And... Having President Obama on meant a lot to us. It, you know, it was it was a great way to cap off the year, and it was a nice motivation to kick off the new year. With the final couple of minutes, I just wonder if we can 
kind of do some big picture stuff. Since the cancellation of Larry Wilmore's show, I believe you're now the only person of color who's hosting a late night show. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, you would hope that there would be more representation. I, I now see it as not just a, a privilege, but to a certain to a certain extent, a responsibility. I see The Daily Show as a platform that essentially contains voices that maybe won't be heard anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's not just about having a black host, having a host of color who's from Africa. It's it's also about having a place where a Muslim viewer can watch and go, you know, I I, I like that the show sees me as more than just a punchline. The show sees me as more than just a caricature of terrorism, you know, and that's something that Hassan has grown into on the show, which has been amazing. Being a person who is funny beyond just his religion, Mm -hmm. but isn't ashamed to say that this is who he is, is a part of of what makes him. You know, having great voices, female voices on the show, Michelle Wolf, Desi Lydic, you know, having Roy Wood Jr. giving his perspective on everything from fast food through to racism in America, Ronnie Chang. It's been something that we, we don't take for granted. And... And I'm excited to see people grow out of that. And I I think what's really wonderful is getting to the place where sometimes people even forget that we are the only yeah. late night show with a person of color. I, I actually like it sometimes where people just, they just forget it, <laughs> which is nice because we're still proud of it. Yeah. But it's nice to be in a place where it doesn't become the label that right. people, you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's not seen as a merit in some way. It's just going, hey, that's amazing to see, and and we 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 work to keep that. We work to keep moving forward on that, and I'm I'm really excited to have that be a part of who we are. How about the exclusive club of people who are doing it that you're now a member of? The generation before, some of these guys had fierce rivalries and <laughs> did not like each other and things like that. Now this crop of people who have all come in in the last you know, five or six years. Right. It's been an amazing turnover. You're the youngest, I think, of the group. Yeah. Do you guys deal with each other? Do you like each other? What's it like? You know, I think what what people forget is a lot of the rivalry came because, you know, I mean, Leno and Letterman, it was going for the same job. And Mm -hmm. then people getting passed over and slots being taken and, you know, the whole Conan Leto shake up. And so a lot of the rivalry came because of something that happened. So that some people go, the late night wars, are the late night wars coming back? And I'm like, but why? Yeah, there's not. Why would we be fighting? And I'm like, aren't there enough wars in America? Isn't there? They you want know, another Real enough? Housewives late night. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you know, just just enjoy it. Right. You know, I, I I appreciate every voice that's on the air because many of these, these hosts I'm friends with and a lot of them I'm fans of. So I watch Stephen Colbert's monologue. I love hearing what he yeah. has to say because he's going to say something that I maybe wouldn't say. Right. You know, I I enjoy watching James Corden singing in a car because, I mean, he's amazing at it. You know, he's he's fun. And as he always says, he's dicking about, you know, <laughs> I'm just I'm just dicking about, Trevor, right. dicking about, you know, he's great. I, I, I enjoy that. John Oliver, I've been a fan of John Oliver may have been one of the biggest reasons I wanted to do The Daily Show, really? you know, it was because I didn't ever think someone with an accent similar to mine could do well in America. And right. there this guy was doing it. So no, I, you know, in terms of competition, it'll always inherently be there. Right. And you, you know, you measure yourself against your peers. So you work to be as good as possible and work to be in the company that you deserve to be in. I mean, you strive to be the best you can be, 
But I don't think this generation sees it as negative competition yet. Maybe right. it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Does any part of you envy a Oliver or a, a Bill Maher who only have to go once a week? Every <laughs> single day. But, you know, I guess on the flip side, what I assume they would argue is that because they get that one shot a week, it better be off the charts yeah. every time. Yeah, no, I, I get I get that. But do you, th- would you still, you would, you would trade? You would, you, would you know what? The grass is greener and I want that green grass. <laughs> right. Last question is this. Since you assumed the, the job here at The Daily Show, have you been back to Soweto or the places where you grew up? Oh, yeah. And part B, what do they make of, of what's happened with you? What do you make of what's happened to you? And is this a place where you, you know, you see yourself until you're John Stewart's age when he left? Or are there other specific things that, that you have on your to-do list? Well, first question to answer that, yes, I've gone back. I go back to South Africa all the time. You know, it's, it's a piece of who I am. My family's there, my friends. So I, I still go back. I, I love going back. How do people react to me? People are really proud because it's we don't take that for granted. You don't go to America and make something of yourself. That's not something we, you know, not even 25 years ago, my country wasn't even a democracy. So <laughs> to be now in another world doing well for yourself while still being proud of your country is not something that that we take for granted. So I'm I'm proud of my people and I'm I'm glad to say my people are proud of me. With regards to the future, I don't know how long I'll be around. You know, I think John did a great job in knowing when it was time for him personally to leave. He didn't leave when people were clamoring for him to leave. He left when he was ready and when he felt like he was done. I read those those interviews Letterman gave where he says he felt like he should have left earlier. Mm-hmm. He maybe gave a few too many years of his life. And so I'd, I'd never want to do that. I have dreams. I have aspirations. You know, I want to get involved in creating shows, not just for myself, but for, for other people. I think there's many talented people with original stories that haven't been told, original voices that haven't been heard. And I think it would be nice to foster a lot of those. So I'll look at that, you know, maybe get into TVs and movie. But for now... I'm just worried about the show that I'm making this afternoon. Tonight, right? <laughs> and, and I'll worry then about the show that I make on Monday. And then, the, you know, because that's, that's all I've ever done in my life is enjoyed and appreciated what I have. You know, they say, um, love what you have and then you will have what you love. So if I focus on the daily show, the answers will come to me. I'm, I'm not in a rush. I'm having the time of my life. Well, you're doing a great job and I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> <laughs>